As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you remember a few months ago? Wow, it seems like ages ago, actually. But back in January, we spoke to an investor in Iranian markets. Yes. And I was thinking, actually, we should we should uh, invite that guy back because when we talked in January, um, you know, we talked about Iran and what investing in that market was like. But that was, of course, obviously mm. before it got hit with uh, COVID, which it was one of the countries that really got hit hard uh, very quickly after China. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a reminder to us to have him back and see how things are going there. We should definitely do a follow up. Uh, but one of the sort of um, themes that came out of that episode, I guess, was the idea that you can find yield and you can find returns if you're willing to put in work that basically no one else right. is willing to do. So if you're willing to go to Iran all the time and sort of deal with all the sanctions issues and, and things like that and really get to know that particular market, well, maybe you can find some decent investment opportunities. Right. I think that's a really important point. And I like the way you put it in terms of like putting in the work because you're not going to find mm -hmm. much sort of like yield or obvious alpha if you're just sort of like looking through a screen of liquid tickers <laughs> traded on a U.S. exchange, or at least it's going to be very hard to find an edge. But what uh, what made that uh, episode striking was just the sheer amount of legwork required to even invest uh, in Iranian companies as a foreign investor and setting up the brokerage relationships and getting money in and out of the country. And if you can find a way to do that and you can uh, make that smoothly, you know, make, operate that, then there are uh, opportunities. But that's a lot harder than what most people uh, are willing to do. Right. Most people will just put their money in SPX and uh, think that will suffice. Right. But clearly, if, again, if you're trying to generate alpha, a lot of people do look to emerging markets. They look to frontier markets because those are considered sort of lesser known than the rest of the world. And that, um, per the Iran example, is really where due diligence comes yeah. in. So and this has been a, a theme in emerging markets for a long time, but we've had people, you know, who go to those markets and try to become experts in them and really get to know what's going on in those particular countries. And I'm happy to say that while we aren't talking to the Iranian investor today, we are talking to two uh, investors who have basically made traveling to various emerging markets their uh, raison d'etre for almost the past year. They've gone to, I think it's something like 10 countries and lived 
probably a month in each one, all in the name of getting that edge, doing the due diligence and getting to know the market better. I'm looking forward to it. I think I, I love this topic. I love the idea of um, putting in the legwork, actually getting to know uh, countries, not just sort of looking at screens and looking at PE ratios and saying, oh, mm. they're going to mean revert or, you know, actually uh, putting in the work. And I'm looking, I think this is a right. great topic. And especially now, like in the middle of this crisis that we're still in, I feel like there is going to be a real I don't want to say, I don't know, maybe bifurcation isn't the word, but there are some companies that will thrive and figure out ways, some companies that won't, and different countries are going to come back in different ways eventually. And it's going to be, uh, there will be rewards for the investors that actually figure out sort of what works and what recovers faster and what, what can thrive in the sort of post-COVID order, whatever that may be. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the other thing um, that that's sort of at play at the moment is just how countries are dealing with coronavirus. Right. And I do think it's very difficult to get a sense of how different places are are grappling with it without actually being on the ground and seeing everything that's happening. Exactly. So this is going to be an interesting episode. We're going to talk EM. We're going to talk coronavirus. Without further ado, let's bring on our guests. We have Burton Flynn and Ivan uh Burton is managing partner at Terra Nova Capital, which advises the Evely Emerging Frontier Fund. And Ivan is a senior investment professional uh, for the same fund at Terra Nova. So thank you both for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I guess just to begin, uh, where did this idea actually come from? Uh, traveling around emerging markets. I, I think when you originally set out, you wanted to go to 12 countries over the course of 12 months. Why do that? Yeah, you know, we've been traveling as part of our investment strategy for um, for over five years. And, um, you know, we've spent about a week, a month, uh, usually visiting about two countries. And, you know, I think that's already more than most, most managers typically do. Uh, we we go out and we meet management and uh, we get a lot of value out of those meetings. I had a friend who was kind of perpetually traveling for five or six years. And, and uh, I, I was always interested in, in, you know, doing something like that, but applying it to kind of our, our um, business model. And so this is something that's been in the works for years. Finally, we, we kind of made the plans and um, we set out to, not just visit, but uh, live in 12 emerging markets for, for one month each um, with our families, moving our families, uh, you know, one month at a time and, um, you know, really immersing ourselves. So what, uh, what countries did you go to on this tour and what does uh, immersing yourselves actually mean? Because a month, you know, it's obviously a little longer than sort of a tourist trip. It's longer than a typical vacation, but still not, you know, necessarily long enough to really sort of know a place and know what uh, day to uh, life is like. But what is, uh, how do you learn about a country in a month? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we started out with the Philippines. From there, we went to Malaysia and then Indonesia. Uh, mm. Then we were in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Uh, from there, we went to Thailand and then Vietnam and Saudi Arabia, South Africa, and Turkey. 
and we had planned to uh, go on to Egypt and Argentina, Chile, and Mexico. Um, and that's actually more than 12. We started out with the idea of 12. Uh, we, we got really excited and, and added a few more countries uh, before, <laughs> before things kind of came to a, a screeching halt uh, with, with, uh, with coronavirus. But the idea was, you know, that we wanted to really get to know these smaller emerging markets. I mean, there's a lot of experts out there that know China and that know India, uh, right. but, we, but we really wanted to get to know these, these smaller markets. Mm. Uh, just on that point, can you maybe walk us through a, a little bit of the investment strategy of the um, the fund that you manage? Like, what exactly is it that you're investing in, and what are you looking for when you go to these countries? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, our strategy is a value a value strategy. So we we are value investors. Um, we are going on location and trying to find companies that aren't just cheap, but that are growing and, you know, that are, that are high quality companies. And so, you know, it sounds like we're trying to get the best of, you know, all worlds. Uh, most people are either value investors, growth investors, quality investors. Um, but we're really looking for a combination of, of all three. Uh, so if you look at our, you know, portfolio, um, statistics and you compare it to, you know, to the index, for example, you know, our PE ratio is, is less than half that of the index. Um, and while our, you know, the, the average growth of the portfolio is quite, quite a bit higher and the, you know, the return on equity is double. Um, the, you know, the, the net debt to EBITDA is a fourth. So, you know, it almost seems like, too good to be true. I mean, you've got something that's cheaper, that's growing faster, that's more high quality, but, uh, but that's what we're going for. And it's not easy. And so that's why we spend so much time uh, on the road looking for these companies. Uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to put together a portfolio like this, you know, but we've managed to find uh, somewhere in the range of 30 companies that, uh, that, we're, that we're really excited about. Talk about that, the easiness, because uh, we, Tracy and I alluded to that in the introduction when we, we talked about the guy who invested in Iran. It's work and it's not easy and it's not looking at a screen and it's not looking for some sort of uh, P.E. ratio, historical norm, mean reversion or some other quantitative strategy. It actually seems difficult to find opportunities in a way that, uh, you know, you're it's a lot harder than just looking at a list. Talk about like, uh, obviously there's the travel part and going to a country, but then like just sort of the grinding it out and figuring out which companies are traded and which companies have the characteristics that you like for your portfolio. Um, what is that process like? Yeah, so, so basically, it, you know, this uh, kind of project of 12 markets in 12 months, it's not only meeting the companies that already look attractive on paper uh, fundamentally which we could probably find uh, just off the computer screen. So we actually try uh, to meet every company that's willing to meet with us. Part of this is um, research, uh, if uh, there is any signal whether the company is willing to meet or not. Uh, but also it really helps us build the knowledge and expertise in these markets. And uh, so the more companies you meet, the more CEOs you meet, I think you also learn the psychologies of uh, people and the managers. Because I think uh, at this point, 
it it already kind of came to this stage that when we walk into the into the meeting, sometimes it's enough to talk to the CEO for two three minutes to realize whether they're just trying to promote their business uh, or they're being uh, authentic uh, in the in the responses to our questions. Uh, so 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 this implies that we meet a lot of companies. So for example, I think it's somewhere between forty companies. Uh, the minimum we met in a country to uh, 90 companies, the maximum we, we met. And I think we were going to meet over 100 companies uh, in a month in Turkey, but obviously COVID uh, kind of disturbed our plans. And after we meet the company, obviously, we bef- before that, we already have the research done. Our team does the research. We have the qualitative, quantitative data about the company. Then we have the data from the meeting itself. Then a big component of the process is also ESG questionnaire that we ask the companies to complete. And when we have all of this data, all of this information, we then make investment decisions and as an investment committee. Of course, some of the companies we meet probably would uh, never qualify as investees, but you know, at the same time for research purposes, this is an invaluable experience. Uh, I think Burton can kind of explain a bit more about the research itself. Absolutely. So, and and it's not just it's not just meeting companies that we are setting out to do. So, so basically, in addition to these kind of forty to you know hundred uh, company meetings that we've done each month, we've also set out to meet with some of the best macro experts in the country, and and that starts mm-hmm. with the finance minister and the central bank governor, and you know, and then the president of the stock exchange, uh, the commissioner of the local SEC. You know the the financial regulator, um, and then and then many more in South Africa, for example. We also met with the commissioner of their Black Economic Empowerment Initiative, um, and you know we also attempt to meet with the um, minister of uh, climate change or of environment in in each country as well, uh, which which we met in Pakistan, for example. So so we we set out to meet kind of these important macro players and and you know government officials we we also meet the US ambassador and and you know the Finnish ambassador in in each country that that we're able to um but then in addition to that you know we also try to triangulate what we're learning in those meetings as well as in the you know company meetings with um with other kind of business leaders and and the best way we found to do this is you know is to reach out to alumni from the business school that we went to. So Ivan and I both attended the Wart- the Wharton Business School, hmm. uh, and so we've reached out to you know to to many of the Wharton alumni in each of these countries. You know, starting with the Philippines, which was interesting because uh, there's there's quite a, a broad uh, base of Wharton alumni there. Uh, so we we had lunch every single day with a different Wharton alum uh, in the Philippines, but. We, this has given us a great uh, opportunity uh, to, you know, to basically meet more people in a different setting, um, you know, people that are more comfortable talking to us and, and you know, talk about like what we're seeing in, in these company meetings and in these macro meetings and, and um, get a better idea of, you know, of what, of what the real situation is. Mm. Just on this note, um, how do you actually go about arranging these meetings. I think uh, Joe and I as journalists probably have an interest in anything you can teach us about access, but yeah. what's it like to <laughs> actually approach, for instance, the central bank governor and, and get a meeting with them? Like, how does that work? Well, the typical way that fund managers 
you know, get meetings with companies um, or with, with uh, you know, macro players um, like the central bank governor is through the broker. And, um, you know, in the past, we've, we've had, we've had an okay experience uh, working with our brokers. Um, but actually, in our, in our second and third countries uh, that we were in, uh, we kind of had a bad, a bad experience with, with our brokers. In, in the second country we were in, uh, our broker quit uh, the first week we were there. <laughs> and uh, kind of sent us an email on, you know, on on our fourth day there, and, and just said, "Hey, today's my last day, by the way." <laughs> and then, and then our our, you know, in in the third country and in, in Indonesia, you know, the the broker just didn't respond to emails, and so so we so we just started actually reaching out um, ourselves to to companies just off their investor relations website mm-hmm. or you know off the central bank governor website. And uh, we were really surprised, actually. So, so the brokers, you know, their big value proposition uh, is that you can't get these meetings yourself. You know, you, you just can't do it yourself. You have to have the local networks and everything. So we started emailing these companies. Uh, you know, in the first country we did it, we sent a couple of, you know, we, I think we sent one follow-up. Um, and the, the more we did this, the, the more experience we got. We actually hired an administrative assistant to help us and um, you know the last country we were in, for example, um, I think we sent 15 follow-up emails. So it's literally every single day we would send another, you know, another follow-up. And and you'd be surprised actually how many companies. Uh, well, there's there's not that many, but you'd, you'd be surprised that uh, you know there are companies that on the 14th email, you know, reply and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I missed your first 13, you know, emails." <laughs> so, so, um, so it's really been an, an effort of, of reaching out cold, of course, explaining who we are, kind of working it that way. Of course, then we, you know, if we can't get a hold of companies that we really want to get a hold of or, or um, you know, government leaders, uh, we might try other sources. We, we might ask, you know, the broker still. Um, and we'll also go through the, the Wharton network and we'll go through kind of, you know, any, any channel that we can. Um, so for example, in Saudi Arabia, you know, we, we were able to actually, we write about this in, in our trip report that we have published on our, on our website. Uh, but we asked our broker to help us get a meeting, you know, with, with kind of the central bank governor, with the finance minister, with the the stock exchange president. And they said, you know, it's just really too hard. And in Saudi, those people never, you know, never meet with investors. Uh, you know, it's, it's not even worth trying really. And so we, you know, we got on LinkedIn and we found somebody who was an advisor to the CEO of the stock exchange and reached out to him. And through him, we were able to get a meeting with, you know, with, uh, with the president of the stock exchange. And um, actually in the meeting with the, the president of the stock exchange, we mentioned that we were you know, trying to get a meeting with the SEC, you know, commissioner and uh, the central bank governor. He said, "Oh, no problem." And he pulled out his phone and you know WhatsApped, uh, you know the the uh, the commissioner and the the governor and and uh, said, "Oh, I've got a meeting arranged arranged for you guys." So uh, you know, no no problem. So um, it's it's really you know it's it, it's really just kind of being scrappy and um, you know and and uh, and you know reaching out to to everybody we we want to meet and you know explaining explaining who we are. So, uh, Burton, you mentioned your blog just then, and I was sort of flipping through it earlier. And one of the meetings you describe was with, I think it was Donald Trump <laughs> Jr. 
which is kind of unusual for someone to go to Indonesia and then end up meeting um, someone like that. How did that come about and how did the meeting actually go? Yeah, I still wonder how that how that really all all happened, uh, because uh, basically, you know, we we went to Indonesia and I think maybe 10 days after we arrived, um, you know, we're sitting across the table at a small group dinner with uh, Donald Trump Jr. and um, some others from the Trump, you know, Trump organization and then a company that we, you know, that we were investigating as well as, as a potential investment. So basically, you know, we showed up, um, the, the CEO of this company, uh, there, that's a, a media company that also has real estate holdings, um, accepted our meeting request. Uh, we, we went and, and, uh, met with him and had, had dinner afterwards, a very prominent individual in Indonesia, um, who's a billionaire and very well known. We were sitting at dinner with him and, uh, he was, he was, you know, kind of dropping names of people that he knows, but, uh, you know, in, in the classiest way you can, you can imagine. Um, so, so basically, you know, he would mention, uh, you know, having, having a vacation house, uh, where his neighbor is Justin Bieber or, uh, you know, or, or, you know, hanging (laughs) out with Donald Trump or something. Um, and then he would, he would grab his phone and, uh, you know, to show us the pictures, but instead of going to his photos app, like most of us would do, he went to Google and typed in his name and the, the person's name and <laughs> showed us showed us the, the pictures <laughs> with him. So he so he mentioned, uh, you know, at this dinner, and this was Friday night uh, after our meeting, he mentioned to us that uh, a couple of days later, Donald Trump Jr. was flying flying in uh, for a pre-launch event for their their properties that they that they're selling together with the Trump organization. And that they're also, you know, going to Bali to tour a project that they're working on together. He said, oh, you know, if you guys would like to come to this pre-launch event, you know, um, you're, you're welcome to come. And um, actually, you know, if you'd like to, if you'd like to come to Bali and, um, you know, spend four days uh, hanging out with Donald Trump Jr., please come. And uh, the purpose for us was really a chance to, one, uh, observe the CEO, this chairman, owner of, of a company that, uh, that we were really interested in and to also uh, tour the assets, uh, that, that the company owned. Um, and so, so then we were, you know, we were sitting, uh, <laughs> sitting at a small group dinner. Uh, we were invited to four, you know, four dinners with Donald Trump Jr. And, uh, <laughs> I sort of got more and more comfortable in each meeting. And by the, you know, by the third dinner, I kind of made some jokes and uh, I ended up getting uninvited to the fourth dinner. (laughs) As a leading real estate manager, principal asset management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So let's talk about um, 
uh, some of the countries and places. We can get to the sort of current crisis and how uh, COVID is affecting your view of the world and uh, various uh, emerging markets or frontier markets. But pre-crisis, as you traveled the world, where were some of the places that particularly uh, stood out to you in terms of uh, places where there are a lot of companies doing interesting things that people didn't appreciate at compelling valuation? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are countries that stood out for good or for bad reasons. I think in terms of valuations, I think the, the, we had a very interesting month in Pakistan because when we came to Pakistan, the country was basically coming off a very... Uh, I think, uh, pronounced uh, currency crash, uh, I think about over 30%. Uh, and there was economic crisis in the country. And we kind of captured the very bottom of it. And so many companies, uh, especially the good companies with good corporate governance, uh, with good cash flows, they were trading at like four or five times PE, uh, which uh, if you compare it to uh, some other countries like Thailand, where we went to after Pakistan, you would actually, you never find a company that trades even at like 10 times P in Thailand. So in Pakistan, the valuations were very, very cheap. And, but the, we found some companies that were very good quality um, uh, with growing earnings and with good prospects. Um, I mean, from the bad countries, I mean, not bad countries, but countries with, let's say, unfortunate macro situations. Uh, so unfortunately, South Africa comes uh, to mind as number one. Mm-hmm country that is really, really challenged from macro perspective. Uh, so, you know, it still is uh, considered an emerging market, but it's the only emerging market in the world that failed to grow its GDP per capita over the past 10 years. Uh, so we, we witnessed many uh, kind of issues stemming from uh, inefficient um, uh, political system and just basically failed institutions uh, all over the place. Um, unfortunately for the people of the country, but... Uh, there is a lot of corruption. There is no credible opposition. There is basically the, they had the decades of institutionalized racism and unemployment rate is at 30% and about 60% for young people. Uh, so we really felt that the country has so many challenges. And actually, we were there right before the Moody's, Moody's downgraded their credit rating. And since then, the currency collapsed another 15, 20% before even coronavirus. And this is kind of the interesting part of investing in emerging markets. We have really countries in different stages of their, you know, po- politics, uh, economics. Uh, for example, we have South Africa, Pakistan, that I mentioned. You also have Vietnam with a very, very strong command communist regime, which actually makes economic wonders, like at this point of the country's development. Uh, then you also have uh, Bangladesh, which was growing like 7 8% GDP per year. Uh, and this diversity is very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, Malaysia probably s- stands out, and I think Burton will give you some good reasons why. You know, um, people look at our portfolio, and uh, today we have about 30% of our portfolio invested in Malaysia. And they often, you know, one of the first questions they often ask us is, why do you guys love Malaysia so much? Wait, can I, and- before you go on, I just want to interrupt you. I used to live in Malaysia, and I love it, so I'm really excited about hearing this. <laughs> well, so people ask us, why do you love Malaysia so much? And our answer is, we don't. We hate Malaysia. Oh, <laughs> oh that's the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh, that's so good. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, so, you know, 
we're really passionate about emerging markets. We love emerging markets. I've, I've spent my entire career in, emer in emerging markets and, um, you know, emerging markets are exciting. You, there's always something, you know, something happening. Um, you know, there's, there's some kind of airstrikes or, you know, currency devaluations, hyperinflation. There's always something interesting happening in emerging markets. Um, but not Malaysia, you know, Malaysia's boring. It just, it grows at 5% a year and maintains 3% unemployment. You know, it keeps inflation around 2% a year. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just never has these really riveting, exciting stories. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's the most boring of all the emerging markets. Uh, so, you know, my point, <laughs> my point is we're not macro investors. So we're not, you know, we're not, we're not uh, trying to pick countries and say, okay, we really love Malaysia. Let's invest 30% in, in Malaysia. Uh, it just happens to be the case that we have found several really, really interesting, exciting companies in Malaysia, uh, that we are, you know, that we're really, um, confident will grow their earnings and that are trading at very, uh, reasonable, cheap, uh, valuations. And for, you know, that's the reason that we have 30% invested in Malaysia. Uh, you know, that said, KL is an amazing city. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Something I'm curious about is, you know, you talk about all the, the great companies you find in Malaysia. And I think when I often think about frontier markets investing, I think about these or emerging markets, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, not many listed companies, uh, exchanges dominated by some privatized banks or commodity or utility or telecom companies, maybe. Um, but what are the types of companies, sort of industry specific, um, that you find exciting? Like, are there interesting tech companies in, uh, on these markets? Like, what are the sectors within these, uh, say, Malaysia or any others that you tend to see uh, interesting opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, often we find some very interesting industrial companies that, you know, are kind of boring and, and overlooked. Ivan can share with you a couple of uh, examples, but I'll, I'll share with you, you know, one example that we actually found in Malaysia uh, that's, that's currently our, our highest weight in the portfolio. Um, and uh, this is a, a tech company, uh, but tech hardware company. Uh, so they, they produce uh, testing equipment for 3D sensors, um, so the kinds of sensors that you find on your iPhone, for example, uh, they test, you know, they test the the equipment that um, you know does facial recogni recognition. Um, they test the Air AirPods, uh, you know, for Apple. Apple is one of their biggest clients. Um, they test the equipment that goes on to 
um, you know, onto autonomous uh, cars and electric vehicles. Um, uh, and and this company, uh, this company, what's what's really interesting about it? Okay, so it's been growing at over fifty percent a year, both top line and bottom line, for five years now. It's, it's a company that is high quality in in a lot of respects, and um, one that we actually uh, owned several years back when the PE was uh, was was ten times or even less, and. Uh, we did quite well on it before, but we ended up selling it because the valuation got into the 20s and 30s. Uh, but when we went and revisited uh, this company, we actually learned that they had since restructured their listing and they, they now have essentially a dual listing, one on Malaysia and one on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And what was really interesting is that the the listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange was trading for less than half the valuation of the listing on the Malaysia Stock Exchange. So, you know, we got really excited not only about the fundamentals and the, the prospects, the growth prospects of this company, but also, you know, this sort of arbitrage uh, opportunity where, you know, we could own this company that was growing at, you know, over 50% a year for uh, a multiple of, of 10 times or less. And so we kind of immediately after... After that meeting, uh, I think within within a couple of days, uh, you know, put in put in our order and made that company the you know the largest weight in our, in our portfolio, and it's actually paid off. Um, so 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 since since we started this trip uh, back in June, um, until the coronavirus crisis hit, you know, our performance for that I think seven or eight month period was ten uh, percent. And just to give you a reference, the, the closest index to, you know, to our strategy, which, by the way, we're very different from what the index looks like, but uh, the closest index was up uh, 4%. And of, of that 10% uh, return, about 4% came from this, this one company. Um, and so, so it's been, it's been a, a huge win uh, for, you know, for our fund. So uh, just going back to the Malaysia example, and uh, I'm just going to pile in on on Joe here a little bit. And you mentioned that that market tends to be quite boring, but we have had one exciting thing that happened, and that was the 1MDB scandal. And this is sort of a repetitive theme in emerging markets. We often have scandals. We often have corporate governance issues. How do you get comfortable with that risk as emerging market investors? Is there something specific that you look out for when trying to um, judge a company? Yeah, um, a company or country. Because, <laughs> I, I, I mean, the example you, you share, uh, yeah. Either, so, I guess. <laughs> so in terms of getting comfortable with a country, you know, using your example of, of kind of the one MDB scandal, um, we used to do absolutely nothing on, on the macro front. So, you know, we were true bottom-up investors that were just looking for amazing companies to add to the portfolio. And, you know, for the first four or five years, uh, that worked really well. And in 2018, we had a fairly high weight in Turkey and in Pakistan. And that year, um, Turkey's lira, the Turkish lira fell within a 12-month period, fell by 50%. And the, you know, the, the rupee fell by 30% in in a 12 month or maybe an 18 month period and uh as a result we actually ended up uh massively underperforming um 
So, so up to that point for the first three or four years, we actually, our performance was in the top one percentile of, you know, of, of all of our peers. Um, that year, had it not been for Turkey and Pakistan, we would have actually maintained that uh, stellar performance. But as a result, uh, we ended up massively underperforming. And so, as you know, what we ended up doing was doing a lot of research on macro events. Um, I'm actually currently listening to uh, the audiobook of of Ray Dalio's Principles, and you know, he does a lot of these case studies, these macro case studies, and that's essentially what we what we did is we started digging into uh, you know, to all of the currency crises that have happened in emerging markets. By the way, um, do you guys have any idea how many times a currency in emerging markets has devalued by 50% in a 12-month period, let's say in the last 30 years? Hmm. No, but I'd like, what's the no idea? So, so it's only happened 12 times uh, in, the last, in the last 30 years. And four of those 12 times was related to the Asian financial crisis. So if you take away those, those four related to Asian financial crisis, there's only been eight times uh, that a currency has devalued by 50% or more. And um, four of those eight were Turkey, <laughs> and two two of those eight were Argentina. <laughs> so so uh, there there are some repeat offenders in terms of emerging market currency devaluations. And so we did these these big case studies, and um, we also built a kind of macro risk quantitative model. And as a you know as a result, we have now overlaid this macro risk model to get comfortable with. Uh, you know, with countries on both a quantitative basis, looking at their current account, looking at their their fiscal deficit and their you know debt, um, and also on a qualitative basis, um, you know, looking for uh, the events that that have been associated with currency crisis in in the past. That's on the country level. On the on the company level, you know, uh, we obviously go on the ground and. Do our diligence on on the companies uh, you know that, that we're interested in, but we also spend a lot of time, uh, as I mentioned, kind of you know meeting with uh, those outside of the company, um, you know, really trying to meet with uh, locals who are you know alums from our business school or uh, you know competitors, ideally suppliers, people that are familiar with the company, uh, because we want to make sure you know that the people that we're talking to are reliable. And you know, if we get uh, if we get conflicting accounts or we get questionable uh, reports of the integrity of the managers, we won't invest. And so, so just to give you one example, actually, which was also Malaysia, uh, there was a company we were really excited about and and would have ended up uh, investing in. You know, we got some conflicting accounts about the integrity of of uh, the managers, and and we decided not to invest in that company. Now, unfortunately for us, it was it would have been one of the best performers. Uh, it turns out, uh, you know, it turns out that the what the you know COO that we met with was telling us was in fact true, and and uh, it would have been this uh, amazing investment. But you know, at the end of the day, that's that's what we need to do to uh, to make sure that we are, you know, that that we're protecting uh, our investors. So talk to us now. Let's, let's let's talk about the sort of current situation a little bit more, because obviously, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but the current crisis, in a sense, has changed everything. 
We don't know how much will permanently be changed, but presumably a lot. And there are also just questions about who will even make it from a sort of company standpoint to the post-crisis era, given the collapse in cash flows, et cetera. So talk to us, uh, and Ivan, maybe you can come in here about how you're monitoring uh, who's making things work or who's getting by or who's thriving uh, in this current moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so I think in our view, actually, we, we see some great opportunities to buy uh, good businesses at attractive valuations. I mean, some some of the uh, purchases could could probably be 100% related to taking advantage of the current environment. So, for example, I mean, speaking of Malaysia, but we bought a glo- like a rubber rubber glove manufacturer in Malaysia to hmm. protect uh, against this COVID-related uh, kind of market collapse. And so we bought it about two, two and a half months ago. And since then, it already went up 150% because the demand for rubber gloves uh, has skyrocketed. But but also, you know, because we spend so much time on the ground, we try to select the very best company we can get for the valuation for the uh, strategy prospects and demand and everything. So in Malaysia, there are four very large glove manufacturers. So the one we bought uh, went up, as I said, about 150% since we bought it. But the other three went up probably like between 35 and 75%. So, so you know, it, it takes some time on the ground to really understand which companies are undervalued. So in this case, uh, we had the right call. Um, of course, uh, we recently did a survey of all the companies we met over the last 10 months. So 632 companies. We asked each one of them 13 questions about the impact of coronavirus on their operations. And I think over 90% of them said that the impact is negative. So, of course, in this environment, it's not so easy to, uh, you know, select only the winning companies. But uh, what we can do, if you think long term, obviously, there are some like this rubber glove company. But at the same time, we can position our portfolio very well for the long term. For example, businesses that were hit the most uh, because of the panic sell-off, but that have great management teams, great cash flows. Uh, and uh, the customers will return quickly. Uh, so we believe those companies are positioned very well to to keep performing. I mean, some of those could be some of the largest and most stable banks in, uh, let's say, each of the emerging markets. Uh, some of those could even be retailers when people uh, start. And, and I think more grocery retailers than some other type of retailers. Um, but, but uh, you know, it, I think everyone is hit uh, about the same. Uh, all around the globe, uh, but you always have these pockets of opportunity. For example, in Pakistan, we had this company uh, which makes hydrogen peroxide. So, I mean, of course, it's uh, it's basically luck. But during these tough times, they started producing the disinfectants for uh, because they used hydrogen peroxide to, uh, for food industry. Uh, but now they started producing it as a disinfectant. So they're their shares also went up about 60%. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's skill, but sometimes, I mean, you also get lucky. Tracy, remind me to tell you after the podcast about the time I was in a nightclub in KL, by the way, <laughs> listening to a, uh, a palm oil CEO telling me about why the world will forever need palm oil and why it's one of the greatest uh, businesses oh, man. in the world. But that's for another time. I was a bit worried when when... Ivan was talking about, you know, like disinfectant yeah, yeah, yeah. and immediately segue to remind me to tell you about the time I was in a club in KL. Um, oh. okay. 
I will definitely ask. Um, well, okay. So clearly COVID has had an impact on businesses and is definitely going to continue to do so. It's also had an impact on the market itself. I'm, I'm just curious, but in terms of investment appetite for emerging market assets at the moment, what are you seeing? Like mm. how bad is it and how difficult is it to convince people to invest in EM at the moment? Yeah. Well, we don't spend a lot of our time uh, marketing our fund, uh, so we spend we spend a hundred percent of our time on the on the investment side. Um, what I can tell you is I've been really surprised by the um, limited amount of of uh, redemptions uh, from our fund. Hmm. Uh, typically, during you know during drawdowns like this, uh, you'll get a lot of uh, you know investors heading heading for the doors. Um, We've only had one investor really uh, redeem redeem uh, their investment. Uh, aside from aside from that, the the flows have been uh, very stable, and so I think you know part of that is that we when we do meet with clients, uh, we try to make sure that they understand you know what our strategy is and and the you know the volatility that's you know that's related to it. Um, but I think part of it might be, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, emerging markets are scary right now, but it's hard to say what's, what's scarier. Uh, I mean, there's also very, very high, you know, inflated valuations in developed markets. So, you know, it's, 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 maybe it's difficult to know where, you know, where to optimally put, you know, put, put one's money, but, uh, emerging markets relative to, you know, to developed markets, have definitely been out of favor for the last decade. In in some sense, are an interesting place to be. Uh, obviously, you know, central banks have much more limited ability to uh, manage the the crisis, and and that's you know that's something that we're looking at. And so we've spent a lot of time analyzing, you know, as part of our macro risk management, uh, you know, commitment, uh, analyzing, you know, where each of these countries are at and. Uh, reducing or eliminating our weight in countries that we see, you know, having excessive risk related to coronavirus crisis. Do do either of you have, or do both of you have a favorite moment uh, from your recent trip? I, I realize it was cut short, but I'm sure you have a lot of memories, a lot of interesting takeaways and, and lessons. What's one thing that sort of stood out for both of you? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll let Ivan think about that for for a second. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm going to go back to you know the the situation that I had uh, shared with you earlier about you know sitting across the table from Donald Trump Jr. Yeah, and you know there there we already mentioned the access we can get simply by sending emails to companies and to stakeholders in these markets. And I think maybe half of the companies, they never met foreign investors before. And here we come, we send them an email. So, of course, they're happy to meet, which kind of means the brokers don't always hold the keys. So, for example, I think for me, it was uh, when we spent a month in Bangladesh. Basically, I just sent a simple email to to the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Mohammed Yunus, uh, Dr. Yunus. And, and I said, you know, our fund has a very... Uh, kind of pronounced uh, ESG focus, but we always want to learn more about ESG. How can we create impact through our inv investments? And, uh, you know, we would really appreciate meeting you. And, you know, he himself, he responded and he said, look, I'm in Bangladesh right now, so we can meet next week. And uh, it's been a great uh, half an hour, one-on-one -on -one meeting, just kind of talking about his involvement in the 
UN uh, Sustainable Development uh, Initiative and uh, just kind of really getting this um, experience and wisdom from the Nobel Prize winner, how we could also try to be kind of uh, more sustainable investors. So th these kinds of meetings on the ground really are worth a lot for us. All right. Well, uh, thank you uh, to you both for walking us through your experiences. And of course, it's a shame that your uh, your trip got cut off early due to the coronavirus crisis. But uh, hopefully you get to go out again um, at some point and you can tell us uh, what you learn on, on that trip as well. So Burton Flynn and Ivan Necheneev, thank you so much for being on All Thoughts. That was great. Thank you. Great. Yeah, thanks a lot. So, Joe, uh, I was going to say something uh, summing up that conversation, but I think I'm just going to go right to your uh, KL, your Kuala Lumpur club experience with a palm oil CEO. Yeah, I, I think he, he was definitely an executive and it was like this like thumping nightclub is like really loud, like, you know, like you, you try to have conversations in a club and it never works. But this guy was like really trying to give me this detailed like sort of like technical argument about why palm oil is this great business in the middle of a club. And he like talked about all the uses for palm oil, like women's lipstick and how there's no substitute for it. And then he also <laughs> said, and I thought this was really interesting, which is that um, you can't really automate um, uh, palm oil uh, production because of the way the, uh, because of the mm. way the tr they're on trees. And so it's not like say like potatoes or wheat where you could just like have someone out there with like a machine and get a big field. You really need to have people in uh, in the jungles or in the plantations um, picking the stuff. And so he was talking about how much that of an advantage that was for Malaysia and labor costs were essential. So you couldn't do it in a high labor cost country, et cetera. So I don't really know where I'm going with it. It was just <laughs> if I if I were doing a tour, that would have been my highlight. I, I like how this is just like this episode has morphed into share your sort of random emerging market experiences. Yeah. What's um, yours, Tracy? What's your favorite random emerging market experience? Man, I got a lot, Joe. You have um, to have one. Well, okay. One time I was in Pakistan uh, with my mother's then boyfriend who owns a very large company we were going up through the mountains in Pakistan. We'd just gone to dinner somewhere. Um, and then we were coming back down and suddenly he stops the car and he starts to panic. And my mom and I are going, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's the problem here? And her boyfriend gets on the phone, um, calls his like personal assistant and starts talking to him in Urdu. And he finally like hangs up the phone and he comes back to the car and we go, what's, what's the problem? And he says, I just reached down for my gun underneath my car seat and it's not there. So basically oh, he's really unusual in that he's a rich CEO who drives himself. Um, and that's pretty unusual in Pakistan. And he thought because his gun was suddenly missing that someone had basically set him up to get robbed or kidnapped or worse. It turns out that his driver or the guy that cleans the car just forgot to put the gun under his chair. But that kind of gives you a snapshot of what it's like to live in Pakistan and do business, right? This is this is the kind of stuff we need. No, no more of this, like, oh, the Fed is going to loosen <laughs> policy and that'll weaken the dollar. 
and that all caused inflows into countries with high <laughs> real GDP, blah, blah. It's like, these. this is the kind of stuff that really matters for investors. Yeah. Well, what CEOs okay. have to carry a gun, the late competitive <laughs> labor cost advantage of uh, picking palm oil in Malaysia. This is where we need to go. Uh, this is this is what we need to be talking about. You know what? We need to do like a call-in yeah. show where everyone just shares their sort of like emerging market business yeah. investment experiences. I'm down. Let's, Let's do, that. do that. Okay. But on a serious note, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think it gets back to what we were discussing in the intro, which is that if you are investing in these types of markets, you really have to do the legwork and... That should mean really going to these places and experiencing both the country and, and the business that you're investing in. Yeah, it's also interesting to think about like the sort of even in the midst of this crisis, the sort of competitive advantage of having having gotten to know a mm. new market. So it's like, OK, suddenly this virus breaks out. Oh, there's a uh, well-run Malaysian um, rubber glove company that could stand to benefit. Like how many people would know that? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That that company even exists. But so, so uh, yeah, but uh, very good, uh, very interesting. And of course, it'll be interesting too. And it always comes up with uh, EM things or frontiers, uh, the degree to which the macro overwhelms the micro. So obviously, even good companies are going to have a hard time in extreme, severe, negative macro scenarios. But it'll be interesting to see mm. um, sort of which, which wins out and whether there are companies that... Uh, really sustainably thrive even if, during what is expected to be an extremely just sort of difficult time for the foreseeable future uh, on a macro front. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking is that uh, Burton and Ivan sound like they would be good uh, financial journalists, you know, oh, sending would, like should, 14 emails yeah. to, yeah, sending 14 emails to try to get one meeting and just sort of like wearing down the CEO of a company uh, in order to get that interview that, yeah, that sounds uh, very journalistic. Yeah, very much so. And I, I would listen to a podcast of theirs too. They should do one for each country they go to. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Okay, uh, well, now that we've created a, a competing podcast to Odd Lots, uh, let's wrap it up. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you should also follow our Bloomberg colleague, Felipe Pacheco. He actually wrote a really good article about what Ivan and Burton have been doing and their travels in various emerging markets. You can follow Felipe on Twitter at Felipe, F-I-L-I-P-E, Pacheco, P-A-C-H-E-C-O. Uh, and I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson, Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.